When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I can Welcome to Strike Talk. By 1884, former president and Civil War hero Ulysses S. Grant was a wealthy man. He owned a Wall Street firm and lived in high style. But on a single day of that year, May 6th, he learned that a pyramid scheme run by his unscrupulous partner had wiped out their company and Grant's life savings. Suddenly, he had but $80 to his name. His wife had another 130. It got worse. Five months later, he was diagnosed with terminal throat cancer and was now facing the very real prospect of leaving his widow penniless. That would be a disgrace. But what could he do? He did what we do. He told a story. In a race against his own decline, he sat down and began to write his autobiography. To help, the legendary writer Mark Twain opened a publishing house and staked Grant to a $1,000 advance, commencement in WGA terms. Grant attacked, often writing 10,000 words in a single day. Miraculously enough, without AI, spell check, or an afternoon latte. By spring, his hand had become too feeble to hold a pen, so Twain got him a stenographer. Then Grant's voice gave out, and his doctors urged him to leave New York City for the clear air of the Adirondacks. By now, he had a tumor the size of two fists on his neck. Swallowing was excruciating. Eating was impossible. Doctors swabbed his throat with cocaine. But he finished the book, a stunning 366,000 words, and died seven days later. The work was a smash. It made his widow a wealthy woman. I think about Grant a lot. He's a reminder of great courage and commitment, also a reason not to smoke cigars. But today, as the distrust between labor and management in Hollywood continues to bring so much pain to so many, Grant's book stands out to me because it was a story only he could tell. Mere months before Grant's wipeout in 1884, the American poet Emma Lazarus was asked to write something that might be sold at auction to help raise funds to build a base on which to place the Statue of Liberty, which the French government had just gifted the American people. Lazarus was deeply involved in social activism, particularly the plight of immigrants on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Her family having fled anti-Semitism in Europe, she was keenly attuned to it here. So she sat down and wrote a short poem called The New Colossus, and it sold and moved people perfectly expressing Lazarus's deeply held beliefs about this nation's then unspoken pledge to the tempest-tossed of the world. She called the statue Mother of Exiles, and she wrote, From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. 
Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest-tossed, to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Those words, now as famous as the statue itself, could not have been written by anyone else. Tragically, they weren't actually inscribed on the base of Lady Liberty until 1903, 16 years after Lazarus had died, but they were hers and they remained so. One of her contemporaries was Julia Ward Howe, a fierce anti-slavery activist who during the Civil War wrote a poem about battle that she sold to the Atlantic Monthly for $5. Success-based streaming residuals were not yet a thing, so that fiver was all she got, but her words, which became the battle hymn of the Republic, were sung by Union soldiers on battlefields all across America for the duration of the war. It began, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And its last verse ennobled the war itself with the famous line, as he died to make men holy, let us die to make them free while God is marching on. No one but she could have written that. No one but Spielberg could have made Schindler's List. No one but Meryl Streep could have played Sophie. Only Betty Davis could have been Margot Channing. No one but Da Vinci could have painted the Mona Lisa or sculpted the David. Only Martin Luther King could have delivered I Have a Dream. Only Barack Obama could have run the campaign that he ran in 2008 in a country as deeply scarred as ours. And right now, only SAG, with its picket lines and picket signs, can tell the story of why our collective dream factory is still in such deep need of repair. It's the role no one but you can play. It's the story of your pain, your voice, your talent, your struggle, your sacrifice, your dedication, and your desire for dignity as well as a livelihood. No, you do not do a job that can be outsourced. Only you can do it. No, it cannot be done just as well by AI. Don't believe me? Tell AI a knock-knock joke and watch what happens. Ask it to play the Al Pacino role in Dog Day Afternoon or Fiddler in Roots. This strike is your stage now. Every step you take on every picket line is your performance and only you can give it. There's a famous saying among songwriters that the three best songs ever written are Amazing Grace, Bridge Over Troubled Water, and whatever song you're writing at the moment. My thespian friends, this struggle is the song you're now writing. No one else can do so. You're singing it for the whole business to hear. You are President Grant using all his remaining might to scratch out the truth. You are the tired, the poor, hoping to breathe free instead of being treated like wretched refuse. And you are the great army Julia Ward Howe envisioned when she wrote, he has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. Appomattox is in sight. Keep marching. The town is your captive audience. Glory, glory, hallelujah. To discuss that with me, I'm joined by Steve Schmidt, who always sees the world and our country through a very distinctive lens, telling America's story back to itself as only he can. Steve, you are not a member of the Writers Guild, and yet a member of the Writers Guild wrote your story. You are not a member of SAG, and yet a member of SAG, Woody Harrelson, played you. You know all about America and America's labor movement and the history of that movement. Tell me, from your perspective, why storytelling matters to a culture that's in a moment of crisis as we are now. Well, because storytelling is the wellspring of optimism in the country. And so one of the things that this age has brought us is the ubiquity of public opinion polling and the sense that the message, whatever story 
there may be should be derivative of a mood that exists temporarily in a moment. So if you were to look in this moment, uh, it's fair to say that we're living in the early years of the angry 20s. However, if you look back in American history to a time of real trial, real testing, uh, the early days of the Great Depression, the 1932 Democratic campaign for the presidency, uh, the song was, not every day sucks, but happy days are here again, right? So there has always been, uh, in the moments where the country is uncertain, where the country is divided, the ability to crystallize a common thread of humanity, of origin, of national character that rallies the country at moments, inspires it, reminds it, all of the critical elements that create national memory. And our national memory is one that's important because the imperfect idea at the moment of our birth wasn't the concept of all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The, 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 the frailty of the idea was in its execution and its application. And all through American history, the people who were excluded from that idea did not try to burn down the society and to take that away uh, from the people who were enfranchised by its revolutionary ideal in the beginning. They simply wanted to be included in it. And it's why Martin Luther King marched under the American flag uh, to the temple where above Abraham Lincoln's uh, sitting in a, in, a, in a chair in marble, it says in this temple is preserved as uh, in the heart's of the union for whom he preserved it uh, you know, forever, the memory of Abraham Lincoln. And it's to that spot that Martin Luther King goes uh, to collect, as he says, a promissory note uh, enfranchising all Americans under that idea. And, and so the story of the country, uh, the ability to tell it, to remind it, to express it is one of the great powers of the United States. Wherever you go in the world, uh, you will be able to see an American movie. Uh, you will hear an American written song. And, and those songs have inspired people uh, across the world towards better as a general proposition and for sure is one of the most powerful, potent, cultural assets and markers of our society's strength, bar none. As we now see the labor movement gaining strength, we see that American approval of unions is at a 50-year high. Is the story of labor and a resurgence of labor part of the American story right now? And do you think it will be for the rest of the 20s? I'm going to set a different metric for you on the health of American labor. 
and there's and there's only really one that matters and it's not the approval of labor by non-union members the real metric is is the union movement in the country growing or is it shrinking and so i'm a believer politically in the power of the pendulum i think what you want in society, and this is something that we've talked about a lot, you and I privately, is some sense of harmony and, and fairness. So you can look at the labor movement where the Teamsters carried Jackie Pressler, completely mobbed up, right, into a union meeting dressed in a toga, right, on like an ancient Egyptian emperor's chair, right? Is that good for the American worker? That's not good for the American worker. Um, at the same time, you can look at a company like Starbucks, right, and all the union busting, really, where you see a corporate character exposed. The, the reality is 60% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 40% of Americans have $400 cash available. Tens of millions of Americans fall into an economic class that is referred to in the financial services industry as unbanked. And if you're unbanked, the place that you bank is through predatory lending agencies, um, usury rates. A lot of these people uh, are the enlisted soldiers, the privates, the corporals, the E-5 sergeants in the, in the military. And so all of this is destabilizing the political system as a whole. And there's a proposition on the table. And I'm gonna take it outside um, of the actors in the writer's strike, which I think are very, very important strikes uh, for the American labor movement and for its ultimate resurgence. And I wanna talk about the auto workers strike. There's a fundamental proposition at hand. Can the guy who builds the Ford Bronco afford to buy it? And if the answer to that question is no, then Ford isn't paying its workers enough. In fact, the entire conception of the company was that it would create an economy by paying its workers enough to buy the products. And so when you look at a company when Mary Barra at, at GM is making $35 million a year, how much does the guy who works on the line get? What's his cut? Right now, apparently it's about 28 bucks an hour on the mean. And the simple truth of the matter is, that's not enough money to sustain yourself at anything approaching a middle-class lifestyle in 2023 America, period, full stop. So the American labor movement is, is an urgent necessity as a corrective at a time when corporations have never been more, have never been bigger, more powerful, and more tightly controlling of the economy, economy, at least not since really the late 1890s, early 1900s, at the, at the beginning of the progressive movement, 
when there was a real societal evaluation about the nature of life and work, capital, uh, production, and, and the worker. And so that is the conversation we are having. We're having a conversation at a political level that fundamentally is about the pursuit of happiness, because you cannot pursue happiness and live an American dream if you live a life of constant anxiety, stress, where you have to commute three hours a day, you can't own anything, you're riddled by debt, and you're at the whim of fairly soulless corporations who squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and squeeze some more while paying this incredibly small percentage of the population, including public company CEOs, fantastical salaries, hundreds, and in some cases, thousands of times more than the workforce makes that are completely on a bell curve outside anything that has ever existed in economic history in the United States ever before in the entire history of the country. There used to be a, a committee in Congress called the Labor Committee. The Republicans got power and changed it to the Workforce Committee. They literally took the name Labor out of the Labor Committee, which tells you how the Republicans feel about labor. How can they maintain power if they are turning their back on that many American workers? What's in it for them to continue to do so? I want to I want to bring this into the writer's strike. When the studios cry poor, we can't possibly survive uh, by giving a share that is X amount to the creative geniuses that write this, film this, act in this. Can't do that. Why not? Because if you just looked at the numbers, right, it just on a piece of paper, there's a lot of money there. So what's the issue? Well, the issue is what expectation? The issue is a Wall Street expectation, right? It's a, it's a quarterly profit expectation. Nobody has any type of vision that extends beyond 90 days in corporate America until the next quarterly corporate earnings call. And every one of these CEOs lives in a tyranny uh, created by their analysts. That's the economic reality. So now you have a choice. Democratic political elected official, well, are you raising a lot of money out of Wall Street? Yes, you are, right? So now you have two sides here, because when I look at the importance of this strike as a matter of principle, as a matter of defining the future of work, particularly on AI, what does the society look like? Is 2% of it going to live fantastical lifestyles of private jets and yachts and everybody else toils? in some type of services economy, hoping to cobble enough together through five or six jobs. I don't think that's gonna be acceptable in the society. And so 
And reality is, is the country is trying to say something right now that its political media class is not listening to. And you're seeing it manifest in the writer's strike, Screen Actors Guild strike, UAW strike, and arrestiveness across the country where some very big issues are being laid out on the table and no one seems to be addressing them, really deeply talking about them, even expressing at some base level an understanding of them and what they're about. Joe Scarborough said something that was very interesting on Morning Joe. And, and he talked about this as a democratic phenomenon. And he was talking about President Biden and the worry that Democrats have about the current status of the polling, the election, vis-a-vis -vis his standing with Trump. And whatever your view on that may be is not the issue. What he said is, that every single Democrat, all of them, 100% of them, everyone, says one thing when the camera goes on and something completely oppositional to it when the camera goes off. Now, I was sitting there in 2015 when I saw the very first Republicans start doing that until it, until it became like literally every single person in the party. And so there's a broad sense, I think, amongst the American people that nothing they hear is on the level from anyone. And, and part of that instinct is because at some level it's not, right? There's one conversation that takes place in a club almost about 20% of the population, right? People who run the studios, the people who run the companies, the people who run the Congress versus everybody else. And it presumes that the American people don't get, get it. And, and I, just think, I just think that's completely wrong. The defining issue that you're seeing in this moment of time is the, is the complete collapse of trust between the American people and in every institution. For, for a long time, the military was the last kind of holdout. And now, and now that too, those numbers are, those numbers are collapsing. And, and so I just think we're in a moment where we are primed for disruption, right? There's a, there's a sign flashing. Right. You, you look at a coming presidential election, you, you, you have an astounding 80 percent of the country is telling both parties, we don't want this. We don't want it. We don't want the Biden Trump rematch. Both political parties. Right. As a as a narrative frame. Right. American people are told these two institutes, they agree on nothing. Scorpions in a bottle. Well, they agree on something. What they agree on is the duopoly is a great thing, right? You're going to get what you get and like it. And, and so the choice in a country where there's a 174 different ketchups are these two institutions 
that people are increasingly unhappy with who are asserting this is your choice and you better like it. And, and it's just it's just out of touch with how people how people view it. And, you know, look, um, you know, politically, you know, when the politicians want to pick arguments with their voters, you know, it happens occasionally. But like at the end of the day, you know, people in this country get a vote. Right. And so you can be mad at what, you know, the polls are saying and everything else. And I think a lot of politicians in America are. But but it is what it is. 62% of Americans believe that if they make enough noise, they can make a corporation pay attention to them as a consumer. 4, 4% of Americans believe that if they make enough noise, they can make their government pay attention to them as a citizen, which means 96% of Americans do not believe that there's any level of noise that they can make that would make their country, their government, pay attention to them as a citizen. Where does that lead? Nowhere good, right? Nowhere good. It leads, it leads on one hand to massive apathy, right? And this is important to understand, right? Because if you worry about Donald Trump, you worry about the MAGA movement, you see it like I do, which is as a genuine threat. The, the coalition that elects Trump is apathy plus a minority. When people believe nothing will change, and most of them believe that because the congressional system, such as it is, is now completely immunized from public opinion. The politicians pick their voters. Really, for almost 90 plus percent of everybody in Congress, really the only danger to losing your seat is through a primary by someone more extreme or more ideological than you in your in your base. So, right, we are we are getting a polarized political cast while the country remains on, let's say, three divisive issues, abortion, immigration, and guns, in basically conceptually an 80% agreement position. 80% of the country says, well, this is what we ought to do. And there's zero chance of it ever happening. And therefore that person looks at it it says there's nothing I can do about it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. They do know that if they apply some pressure to a corporation, that that corporation who is not insulated from public opinion is not insulated from repercussions from its market uh, will respond. Um, and, and that's what the difference is. 65% of Americans believe that they don't matter. You know, the need to matter is so primal. We're born needing to matter. If that need goes unmet, society crumbles. We need to communicate to people that they, they matter to their family, to their community, to their country, to our collective future. That's part of what storytelling is about as well. That's part of what writers and actors do all day long is put people back in touch with that feeling. How have we lost it? in America, this idea that we as individuals matter. There's no question in my mind 
right, that there's a deep correlation between the rise of social media and the smartphone and that result, right, that there is an isolating aspect to technology. Uh, if you walk around, overwhelming percentage of the population is staring at their shoes, staring down, looking down. And I try to say this to my kids, right? You want to live your life looking down or you want to live it looking up, right? If you never look up, you're going to miss a lot of things. And so you have a lot of people living a looking down life. We live in a time of real isolation, a real lack of community. We have a real epidemic of loneliness. Human beings are social animals, and, and we should understand that though it may be toxic, though it may be dangerous, what Donald Trump did was to create a community of people who felt aggrieved and dispossessed. What Trump is at the core is a philosopher of fuck youism who has brought together a coalition of aggrieved and grievance and substantially when you look at a Trump event, no one's lonely. And so when you see people walking around dressed head to toe in costumes for a political candidate, that's a community, right? That's a, that's an antidote to the loneliness. Now, the, the community, right, that no one talks about, very few people will talk about the thing that we share in common, most of us, 330 million of us, which is we're Americans. And, and, and that is a powerful identity to me. And I think for a lot of people. And so the identity, I think, that's the most powerful identity for the overwhelming majority of the country is never owned, never asserted. And so the American identity requires some level of commitment in its expression to its idea. Chanting USA, USA, USA is jingoism not patriotism. Expressing your American identity as an American means accepting some of the foundational ideas of the country, such as we're all created equal, meaning you can't have an embrace of an American identity and be in the KKK. You can't have an embrace of an American identity and want to take away people's right to vote. You can't embrace your American identity while denying elections while discriminating, while hating. So if you can connect people to the concept of forging and creating a better world with some shared human values through a prism of shared common national identity, I think you can bring these numbers down. But, but everything about our society right now from an incentive structure, isolates people. And people are isolated, isolated by pandemic, isolated by technology, isolated by politics. They become lonely and sad.
isn't that another reason why people need unions? Because of the, that need for community and, and commonality. Unions create a community, and if the union is if the union is functioning properly, right, it's creating a better life, and it's creating a system where others want to join the union. What a union does is aggregate political power, economic power, in the name of fairness. And, and what we have right now, when you look out across the country, is a lot of structural unfairness that's been building up over 40 years. I mean, if you want to go back and look at the presentations that Ross Perot gave in 1992, when the NAFTA debate was occurring, and you go back and you were like, well, who was right in that debate? You know, not who won the debate in the moment, who was right 30 years later. Ross Perot was right about a lot of the stuff he said. And so, so the American worker, right, the, the middle class of the country has always been the core of the country's power. Always. And so if you have a weak core, what happens? And when you have an American population, 60% living paycheck to paycheck, is America a wealthy country? Well, by a lot of metrics, yes. But by a lot of others, it's not. It's becoming increasingly a poor country with regard to the wealth of its people. Uh, standard of living is declining. Life expectancy is declining. You have a huge crisis of dignity in the country. And, and what, what causes the crisis of dignity for so many? It's the economic hardship, the constant anxiety that comes from living paycheck to paycheck with no possibility of escaping a vicious economic cycle where everything gets more expensive every month, where interest rates now foreclose home ownership, and you read in the paper, oh, the company that doesn't make money, the company that just laid off 35,000 people has got enough money to pay CEO $50 million a year. And when that goes on for 20 or so unimpeded years, you have a whole society problem that's kind of thought about as a political problem. That's not what you're seeing play out right there. These strikes, this moment, uh, these are all related, and this is a big moment. And, and, you know, what you will see, I suspect, in the next five years, an actual raw number increase in private sector union membership uh, in an environment uh, where people are beginning to assert, hey, um, I don't want to live like this. And, and that's going to be a big debate that plays out. We're going to leave it there. Steve Schmidt, thank you. I love talking to you, even when you scare the hell out of me. Thank you, boy, Right, Always good to be with you. I like that idea, that storytelling matters because it is our national wellspring of optimism. The Democratic Party won in 1992 and 2008 because in those years, it told a powerful story. 
In 2016, it did not. And the result was the most corrupt and inept presidency in American history. I love talking to Steve because it's impossible to engage with him without learning something. And because he is a reminder that the solution to America's ills is always a return to this country's stated ideals. That, at its core, means honoring the worth of the individual, putting people first. It's what our movies tend to be about. It's what our strikes are always about. If Steve is right, and what's to come is to be the angry 20s, unions are going to grow, and strikes are going to be their most potent, if regrettable, weapon. Or maybe that won't be necessary. Maybe the resolution of the WGA and SAG strikes and what those settlements will say about how power ought to be shared in our business and ultimately in our country will light the way for a new era of partnership between labor and management in America. Maybe we can all build a bridge over troubled water together. That's a story I'd very much like to tell. I'd like to thank my guests, Steve Schmidt, and my tireless producers, David Farino and Hannah Baker. Please join me next week when my guests will be Jack Yellen, and Milton Alger, who in 1929 wrote, Happy Days Are Here Again. This is Strike Talk. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.